welcome to Beyond and Above, a podcast featuring inspired conversations about spiritual self-development, human inner health, life purpose, and the like, with a particular but not exclusive focus on anthroposophy. I'm your host, Daniel McKenzie, and if you are one of the bazillion people who don't know what anthroposophy means, this podcast is for you. But it's also for people who are into anthroposophy and just want to hear some cool, deep conversations with some truly compelling guests. My main disclaimer here is, bear with us, anthroposophists tend to be long-winded, present company included. We like to talk but we also like to listen. And this is, after all, a podcast. But I promise that future episodes will not have as long an introduction as the one you're about to hear. I just have to do a little setup. You can totally make it through this. I believe in you. Now, a lot of people, particularly people who have kids, have heard of the Waldorf school system. Others who are into organic farming and produce have heard of biodynamic agriculture. Some people who are interested in homeopathic remedies may have heard of anthroposophical medicine. And a few people out there have heard of the esoteric art of eurythmy, from which the popular 1980s band The Eurythmics derived their name. Oddly enough, however, not many people know anything at all about anthroposophy, the spiritual movement founded by Rudolf Steiner, from which all of these previously mentioned vital impulses were born. So... The driving force of inspiration for this podcast is my wish to be a kind of ambassador for anthroposophy among those people who don't know anything about it. And so I'm endeavoring to do that here by facilitating commentary, collaboration, and above all conversation with people who are actively working within this creative stream. Now, the dominating discourse of our day with regard to spirituality is, like everything else, a highly polarized and largely manufactured divide, in this case, between science and religion, which are pitted against one another, with science worshipping atheists on one end and religious dogmatists on the other. Now, the two false conceits I see operating here are, one, that religion with a capital R is the sole proprietor and progenitor of spiritual beliefs and concepts, and two, that science by definition cannot and therefore will not admit to or engage with realities or realms that are not materially measurable. In reality, however, there exists a vast gray area between these extremes, and a bridge of sorts is slowly being built from both sides. There are scientists who are delving, at least theoretically, into realms beyond quantifiable measurement. And there are also spiritual movements and impulses that are not governed by ancient text and dogma, but which are inviting and inspiring new methods of scientific research to explore them, rather than shunning the sciences. And there is what I call this contemporary dialogue of non-religious spirituality and self-development that continues to grow and expand. And it consists largely of New Agey teachers like Eckhart Tolle, Marianne Williamson, and Deepak Chopra. You have holdovers like Ram Dass and Alan Watts, whose teachings still have many followers. We have new permutations of ancient religions like modern Buddhist chanting centers and the massively popular westernized yoga movement. You've got these YouTube video-propelled new philosophies of manifestation, mindfulness meditation, there are meditation apps, spiritual life and self-love coaches, and something I'd like to get into a little bit later as we talk with our guest today, um, the neo-indigenous sacrament ceremonies, wherein Western people are partaking in psychoactive, substance-driven rituals in search of spiritual growth and healing. So, the, quote, new spirituality is a bit like the Wild West frontier, with all these different factions staking their claims. And despite the growing popularity of certain anthroposophical initiatives like Waldorf education and biodynamic agriculture, anthroposophy itself as a spiritual path is... Well, it's, it's there on the frontier, but it's kind of camped out like a little isolated Amish settlement. It's, it's in a little bit of a bubble, and it's unclear to me to what degree this kind of isolation or exclusion of anthroposophy from this contemporary dialogue is self-imposed, or there may be outside forces conspiring to thwart and contain it from expanding and growing. Either way, this is my entry point for us today. 
And my very first guest is Lisa Romero, who has worked for decades within the spiritual stream of anthroposophy as a homeopath and complementary health practitioner, an adult educator, an advisor to Waldorf teachers, and a personal consultant to people of all ages. Now, in recent years, Lisa, most of your work has been dedicated to teaching meditation and what you often call inner work. And you've written five published books in this field, with a sixth one on the way in just a few months. By the way, Lisa's website is www.innerworkpath.com. So this is an interesting place for you to enter this dialogue, Lisa, because you have largely been working within communities and groups where people are generally familiar with anthroposophical concepts. With your new book, you are venturing out into the greater public, and so I imagine this is bringing both new opportunities and new challenges. In your talk the other evening, you mentioned that seven out of roughly eight billion people on the planet hold a concept that views the human being as more than a material entity, in essence, as a spirit dwelling within a body. And you emphasize the importance of incorporating that understanding into our education, in fact, into everything we do. But practically speaking, in order to bring any impulse into the mainstream, particularly a spiritual one, it would seem that that would require a kind of general agreement about objective spiritual truths that transcend religious narratives and belief structures, the same way that natural sciences seek to discover objective truths about the natural world and then teach those. Now, people with whom anthroposophy already resonates feel that we have not only a growing body of wisdom already in our hands, but also a reliable method of self-development and research that can indeed lead us to those objective truths with regard to spiritual matters. A method that was termed spiritual science by Rudolf Steiner, the originator of this stream. And yet, to the world outside this movement, Anthroposophy is a bit of a conundrum. Due to the sheer volume of work shared by Steiner, it is sometimes portrayed as a cult that worships its one leader whose word is gospel. People don't understand that there are plenty of others, and yourself included, who have followed Steiner, who have continued that work and forged new paths of human learning and insight within anthroposophy. Now, other people are just plain suspicious that one movement founded by one person can reliably offer so many clear pictures and explanations for things that were largely thought to be unexplainable or unknowable. And it probably doesn't facilitate secular acceptance that the vernacular around anthroposophy employs many names, terms, and ideas that are associated with religion. So, to dive right into the deep end, how do you, Lisa, meet this challenge of helping people understand that anthroposophy is neither a religion nor a cult, but a vibrant, living, evolving approach to understanding humanity and the world in which we live? Well, I think that's a essential question in how we stand today in the world. Actually, with such an individualized relationship to many things, not just to the realm of spiritual life, but even to the realms of our cultural life, how we consider community life, how we feel about sexuality, how we feel about gender. There's such diversity that is being expressed. And it's that diversity that anthroposophy really helps us to understand. So absolutely, clearly, it is not a religion, but it can help to understand the diversity of religions. So people can be, in fact, religious and be involved in anthroposophy. They can have an Indian guru and be involved in anthroposophy. They can not have a religion and be involved in anthroposophy. They can be a Buddhist and be involved in anthroposophy. I think the common denominator is that we recognize that there is a spiritual life and that spiritual life for each individual may unfold in a different way. So Rudolf Steiner used to use this term when he talked about working with your own inner development. He would say you know, when you've worked with a certain meditative practice or you've been contemplating a certain wisdom 
statement or verse that may paint a picture of our living relationship to something that we don't usually experience in the sense world, he would say, now um, contemplate your divine ideal. And he quite rightly stated in that point, your divine ideal will be what is it that turns your inner world, that turns you to go beyond yourself and your sensory personality, to go beyond the parts of you that are in a way entwined in this earthly existence and allow you to sort of adjust yourself in a wonder or a awe or a reverence to the spirit so if you're a buddhist he says your divine ideal might be buddha if you're a christian your divine ideal might be christ a pagan may find their divine ideal in nature someone else it may be love itself so contemplating your divine ideal and when we really think about that this teacher was saying whatever the divine ideal is for you it gives us an insight into this modern dynamic that we're in and that is we no longer necessarily enter into a stream of religious life or spiritual life that has been handed down to us of course that doesn't mean to say that you may not have been born into a system that resonates deeply with your understanding of the divine but how would you yourself contemplate your divine ideal it's a great question because not everybody even had that thought what is the divine ideal for me and in knowing that you know if it's yours or if it's borrowed by what it does to you inwardly if you contemplate something uh, that has been handed down to you or indoctrinated into you like a blind belief system it will not have the potency that something that is really truly your own divine ideal and although this may sound like a, um, a slight diversion I want to read a quote by Einstein given the introduction that you brought everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. In this way, the pursuit of science leads to a religious feeling of a special sort, which is indeed quite different from any religiosity of someone more naive. So there's a human being that has found their divine ideal. It leads to a inner activity which is not the same of that religiosity that is handed down. So you know when you found it, because you know that when you contemplate it, it turns something inwardly. You can be caught up in the cares and the worries of a particular event in life and if you allow yourself to contemplate your divine ideal it changes your inner space so that's one aspect it's really valuable in understanding that what actually takes you out of the personal particular self towards this higher eye this spirit activity this deeper soul connection and if you can find that for yourself, it doesn't really matter what you want to call it. That's actually a daily contemplation. But then on top of that, we could actually add, for you, you have a divine ideal, but then you could ask yourself, what are the virtues or the qualities of your divine ideal? So, for instance, a Buddhist, one of those capacities may be the practice of loving kindness or compassion for a christian it may be charity it may be um loving thy neighbor for a muslim hospitality and respect these are qualities now uh, of of an activity that we recognize belongs to the way of the divine ideal that's individual to us so in anthroposophy, as a path of working 
with spirituality, it's not only to have the divine ideal, but to know about the qualities, the capacities, because now I, in freedom, practice those capacities or live a life that attempts to align to those qualities of the divine ideal that I recognize to be something that has a deep effect on the transformation of my own inner world. So you see within that context this extraordinary freedom that arises with a spirituality that can illuminate and actually awaken and enliven all kind of pathways. But it asks something, and that is in this age, how do we as individuals have a responsibility not just to think it but to live it and so we find our divine ideal we have to contemplate for ourselves yes okay we may all determine there may, may be a hundred people that decide that buddha is the divine ideal but then in the deeper contemplation what of those capacities or what have you come across that absolutely resonates as an activity, a quality, a capacity that makes you a Buddhist, actually? And then how would you practice that, bring your life into alignment with that? Because in the practice of it, you begin to transform all the parts of you that actually have fallen away from the divine, one way of expressing it, are yet to align with the divine or are entangled with the what is not divine in the world. So this picture that arises out of anthroposophy brings this umbrella to spiritual life. And this is a very important and necessary um, inquiry because as we kind of develop greater and greater individuality, the risk is that we not only have these separate nations of land that go up against each other, a nationalism of place, but we actually begin to have like a nationalism of thought. You can see that today where different peoples are grouping and they demand you use a certain language in order to be in relationship with them and somehow if you don't know the language, you're banished from that connection. And that seems to be happening more and more as we develop as individuals. And so it is the spiritual life, actually, that will unify us. It won't be necessarily the practical life. Although we could say we all belong to the earth and whatever we do to the earth's atmosphere and this biosphere is happening to all of us at once, as we are citizens of the earth, we can separate from one another and fight each other's ways of being. But if we can work with the unifying force of spiritual life, we will be able to overcome that tendency to battle the other and rather ask the, ask the question, I'm interested in whatever actually is the divine that allows you to go beyond this personal particular selfish self and that really is not dictated today from outside of ourselves and so anthroposophy really meets the modern consciousness because we don't want somebody determining how we should think or feel when it comes to something like the freedom of our spiritual life this is a great affirmation for a lot of the ideas I've been working with, uh, this idea of the spiritual ideal arising from within oneself to transcend the inherited um, thought patterns and belief systems. I was particularly contemplating this idea in the context of the question, well, how are we ever as humanity going to get to this world peace ideal, when we have so many different religious streams. I read a book recently by a popular atheist scientific thinker named Sam Harris, who makes a pretty good case for why he thinks religion in general is obsolete. And of course, he, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there. He talks about the pedophile abuse in the Catholic Church 
and the many violent things that have been done in the name of various religions, particularly Islam is his favorite target. And in certain contexts, you can sort of see, oh, well, he makes a case for how there are these texts that advocate certain punishments or certain ways of being that seem antiquated to almost anyone's modern moral compass. And yet when I think about this, A, it just seems so unrealistic to think that all of these people in the world are going to give up their religious paths. Is there some other way that we can evolve together towards a more peaceful coexistence that involves more maybe a transformation of certain paths? Look at any given religion. You can look at Christianity, and there are some people like the Westboro Baptist folks that'll go protest and talk about, you know, gay people are going to go to hell. That's not even the, the term they use, but, or you have certain people like you said, who are of the Islamic faith, who will, uh, out of a spirit of hospitality, take in a soldier from an opposing military because they're wandering and need to be fed. And then you have someone of the Islamic faith who will throw someone off the top of the building for being gay or go on some kind of a self-exploding jihad mission. So to me, there's room within any religious stream for somebody to have something awaken within themselves and... I guess you're calling that the divine ideal that says, without having to leave my inherited path, I can find the true path within it and not only transform my own experience and allow a freer experience of spirituality to arise within me, but also maybe help transform my community's spiritual experience, right? If it takes a few people to address an imam who's encouraging violent action to say, we don't believe that in our hearts we know that Islam is a path of love. So there's maybe a possibility, rather than just trying to get the world to throw out religion, to have transformation happen within. But my question to you is, within this concept of the inner divine ideal that is a uniting force, is there not something that is common? Like something you said, well, for some people it's love. Isn't love, in a way, a common force? Isn't freedom, or at least some expression of true spiritual freedom, a common force that would arise naturally? That's like a, a universal, in this sense, of the divine ideal. Yeah, I think that love, yeah, you know, God is love. <laughs> but that, that statement is, in a certain sense, a reflection of the the weaving thread between all the various schools of thought that love is a spiritual reality. We could almost say it is the being of the spirit, the being of love. But we also have this one sun that shines upon our earth and we could see that the sun as a being, has um, these activities about it. On one hand, it sheds light, and on the other hand is warmth, and the other hand it gives life. And these three words, light, warmth, and life, in the esoteric world, reflect spiritual reality of light being wisdom, warmth being love, and life, you know, life that overcomes death, you know, which is a life of the spirit is not the death that the transient self has to go through. So these forces we see in a way show us that there are different ways of it which one person may enter into their connection with the divine. So we may have somebody that's a Christian that works through the wisdom pictures other Christians may work through the love stream and others through the life sphere. Their religion bestows strength upon them and they have strength to give. So we can see that, yes, there are various religions, but even in the one religion you can see individuals are drawn to aspects of it. And then, of course, we could take something like light and see that it fractures, in a sense, or falls in these seven rays or streams and these streams are distinct colors that come from this one light but they have different processes about them or activities when you perceive yellow 
you experience something different inwardly than when you perceive blue. And what I would say about the streams which we may connect with because we see a common relationship to the divine ideal within another human being is what can we do each of us to help progress the stream we feel the most links to and that's really another way of saying what you just said each of us has the possibility of bringing progression and I think one of the problems with the indoctrinated religion that's handed down is that it's often held in a place where it can't be adjusted and of course there are aspects of the wisdom that are for the time of which it is given but then there are aspects of the wisdom that are part of the eternal and part of a true living picture whether it was given thousands of years ago or given yesterday. So one of those images arises in the esoteric school in many, many forms. And that is to say that the true being is not this transitory self, but the light of the spirit or the eternal soul, whichever language you want to use. And that's always been spoken about it's been spoken about from ancient times up until today but then the nuances what you describe sort of the ways that different ages indoctrinate how to live according to the spirit well that actually changes through the times it has to because humanity is progressing humanity is changing so how would we find the eternal truth in Christianity, the eternal truth in the Muslim, the connections that arise for the Buddhist. What's the eternal truth? And then what is transitory that actually made sense to the time, the place, and the unfolding necessity of when it was made manifest, which we also know has gone through change and transition revisions right the ecumenical councils editing the bible absolutely certain gospels being lost and found and um and i'm sure that's true for the varying paths and i guess you're speaking to the problem with fundamentalism when there's sort of a verbatim attachment to certain texts versus the sense that you're talking about of having the ability to allow something even as inscribed in time as a religion or a religious path to evolve within itself yeah and the picture that you gave before which i'm sure is to some degree informed by some of the verses i've been working with this picture of the sun shining on us all but us all having in this capacity of awakening the inner ideal to become a miniature sun it's Mm. like this your heart is its own sun yeah and playing off what you said, I might awaken my inner ideal in a way where blue mm-hmm. is my stream of the sun. And so I work in a particular way and somebody else is streaming a green rays. But but we each have this. Yeah. And we recognize each other. So I have met people from all religions that I would say are able to work um, with the divine that is the most progressive today. And then I would say I would also have met people from all streams that are really keeping everything in the dusty, untransformed state. And I think that's what, in a way, this capacity to say, are we able to work with the progression of the stream that we feel most connected to? is a part of the unifying nature of the spiritual life it won't be in the detail it won't be in the how to pray it will be in the essence of it the essential nature of it and you recognize that in someone you can recognize it in them and you know your heart will be as joyous if you meet someone of a different tradition that has turned towards their life in relationship to the spirit overcoming this separated 
selfish existence so that they can support the progression of humanity working together. Just the same amount of joy than if you meet someone of the stream that you're working with. And so we know that there is a uniting force to spiritual life because we know it for ourselves, but it isn't necessarily in the indoctrination or the details of the form. Um, but we all can use language or symbol to help us understand and convey to each other the nuances of this complex spiritual life because we talk about the divine and we say it is love, but love, it's, it has so many facets to understand about it because it is not just a feeling that arises. It's, it's a deed. It is every time I overcome myself. It is so many things. And so we find language or symbol and consistently engage with our inquiry into a deeper and deeper understanding, just as we do in the world. You know, we have not left the earthly world to its own devices. We keep digging and inquiring and investigating and and trying to go more and more into all nuances so we can understand it. We can understand how long it's been around. We can understand how these systems work together. But we've still got miles to go. We don't think we, we know the earth just because we could have done what we were doing. Not at all. In fact, we are learning that sometimes as we participate in it, it's actually changing. And we're actually now engineering certain processes on the earth because of our participation. And that's an interesting realisation with the inquiry into the spiritual world. And that's why we can say that Steiner used this term spiritual science, because it isn't just like, well, God is love, that's enough. There's also all of the, uh, the layers and the reality that when humanity participates in the conscious relationship to the spiritual world, actually there is a change. And it's not, as it is in the earthly world, an engineering and a modification that we end up having to make dramatic adjustments to. But rather, when the humanity connects with the spiritual world, we find that we are able to bring the revelations of what we experience there. And of course, that word in itself, revelations, belongs to a certain stream. So whatever that could mean for you we bring what we experience as a living reality of the spiritual wisdom and then we ourselves attempt to live that and that means that we participate humanity participates in this living relationship to the spiritual world and not only follows what has been given to us so it's just tempting to stay in this mode of talking about revelations and shared recognition of somebody who's connected to their divine inner ideal. There's nothing sweeter in a way than feeling, oh, there's hope and faith because people from different paths are kind of walking parallel. But let's talk about this sort of less pleasant topic of the thwarting influences. You said, okay, well, in the domain of religions, there are people that are kind of in place trying to hold to the stagnant old ways. But we know that there are also other thwarting forces that humanity is dealing with that you've talked about to, and also written about to some degree. And two of those I hope we can get to today are certain influences that are bound up in technology, because that almost presents itself as a progression of human endeavor. Technology is really on the cutting edge of what we scientifically point to as, look at how amazing and sophisticated we are. Mm -hmm. And then in the realm that we'll maybe get to after of substance use for spiritual pursuit, a moving into an indigenous people's old path to access the spirit. So we have forces that may be thwarting, but let me start with a quote from Steiner that I found on technology. So Steiner said, materialistic thinking will continue to increase and to be prevalent for another four or five centuries. And that, and this is the quote, the forging together of human nature with the nature of the machine will be a significant problem for the rest of the earth's evolution. So the essence of that problem is not whether or not this will happen, which according to Steiner is inevitable and in accordance with Earth's evolution to a degree, but whether it will happen for the salvation of humanity or exploitatively for egotistical or group egotistical purposes. 
So now we have people like Ray Kurzweil and even Elon Musk have posited that the uncontrollable takeover of artificial intelligence, often referred to as the singularity, is both inevitable and imminent. And both of these men have talked about humans gradually becoming cyborg and eventually being able to upload our minds into AI, leaving our bodies entirely behind. Given what this reveals about how many people in the world of science and technology view human consciousness, how can someone with an anthroposophical understanding of the world contribute spiritual concepts of consciousness into the popular dialogue in a way that guides us towards the healthy integration of the mechanical and away from the exploitative? So that's maybe the jumping off question. And can you maybe in that regard also touch upon uh, how can a person who's concerned with spiritual health and growth meet and interact with the technology in a way that doesn't deny the spirit nor diminish our humanity. Um, specifically, things like meditation apps come to mind, but let me just throw that over to you. How can I gauge, for example, whether or not I'm living in healthy balance with technology? Mm. It's a big question, but let's approach it in some ways that we can perhaps recognize that's happening for us individually, because obviously looking at what will happen in the future can be daunting but we can actually already assess for ourselves the different aspects of our own interior world. So we have our everyday personality, and the personality is known to be connected to the transitory self. So when you die, you lay that aside. And it's this personality that utilises the instrument of the body and the brain-type thinking that the technology that is here and coming can imitate incredibly well. So you will have individuals because of the technology that will be hard to distinguish from a human personality. And if we were just that, then everything that you mentioned could be seen as true in the sense that you could upload your personality and your memories your memories your personality you know the, the usual picture of our transient self but when we look at the interior life of somebody that has worked on self-development they could recognize the difference between the content of the mind the thoughts that fill the mind, some of which have been handed down, some have just been conditioned into us, some just responding to the environment that we're in. And the the difference between the content and actually the faculty to think. And the faculty to think, you could say the computer has. But there's another activity that the human being can do now that it's developed, it's evolved to being able to do, and that is to have a kind of thinking which means that you can experience the, a world of living thoughts that can think with you, think alongside you, actually engage you in such a way that your own mind is being taught whilst you are in your contemplative thinking. Now, that capacity to have living thinking, to engage with the spiritual stream of thought that is not this deadened thought life that only reacts to the sensory exterior world, that machines can't do. That type of living thought process where we feel like we are actually engaged, I used that word before, revelations, but the wisdom, the stream of wisdom and insight, maybe we even talk about this inner guidance. Now, what makes you do what you do in your life? You see, what determines your decision-making? Now, there's a part of your being that operates like a machine. You get up at a certain time, you know, nine to five, etc., etc. But there's a whole aspect of your destiny, your life that unfolds that will never be replaced by a machine. And it's all those aspects of our humanness that we're much more ready to explore now that we need to explore because we will have this technology 
But if we do not have an understanding of what really is a human capacity or faculty and even grow those faculties within ourselves, then the machine can outsmart us. But the machine cannot actually bring to life these other human faculties. Now, the interesting thing is that the development of these faculties is something that we're able to do now for ourselves. In the past, we would have said only the advanced human beings, what we call the initiates, had this capacity to engage with the living stream of wisdom, to have these revelations, and then they would pass them on to the to the others. We would have these secret initiation temples where people would actually come into relationship to the extraordinary mysteries and the mystery centers. But then the collective of humanity would just kind of get the, uh, the watered-down version in their religious festivals, for instance. But now we've moved to a point in it where in humanity, each of us, this is not now a path for the chosen few, but for the many, we actually have a capacity to enter into the, to the new mysteries, which is not done in secret, but it's done within the, within the human being's forces. And because we can do that, it's almost a guard against what, the machine is going to do. However, not everyone will choose to do that. Not everyone out of their own resources will actually go on and develop these human faculties. These human faculties that are like um, wisdom-filled directives from beyond this sense world. Like what makes somebody move city? Is it the same thing that would actually make a cyborg move city? Probably not. But we have to start connecting to those inner voices, or maybe that's not even the right terminology, but the inner wisdom, the wiser being in us. Because the wiser being in us cannot be imitated by the cyborg. And it's that wiser being in us that has us be where we need to be, to have those right encounters, to actually continue to evolve capacities that in the past were only limited to the initiates of humanity. And now these are available to all of us. The thing that Steiner really amplifies here, which is very important, is that it will only be if we choose to evolve these capacities. Others will choose to bind their consciousness with machine. Now, he said this over a 100 years ago, and you can imagine being in the audience a 100 years ago, hearing that people would actually choose to bind their consciousness with machine. But today, of course, we have people queuing up, wanting to bind their consciousness. So what have you unfolded in your own being will determine the choices you make in the future. And so we can begin to understand why he said that inner development and meditation will become a necessity because it is in that internal activity that we start to feed and nourish faculties that are essential for going forward. One of those faculties is the capacity to have a, a living thinking and that's very different from a cyborg thinking. It is not possible. But if your thinking is, as it is for many people, just based on the information which is being fed in, information in, information out, and all involved in the sense world, with perhaps a bit of personal emotion thrown in, and sympathy, antipathy, liking something, not liking something, if that is what your inner world is, then actually the machine will supersede you. But if you have an inner world where you can engage with thinking, as Einstein did, he used to go for walks in his mind, and in the walking in his mind, he used to connect with these thoughts, which would humble him, and he could bring those thoughts into the world around, which some of them we're only now recognising that we have the instruments to prove 
that's the faculty, not just for the chosen few. And in a certain sense, you could say the rise of technology has allowed us more freedom to develop these possibilities. I often mention this, you know, the average household today in the Western world would take 23 people to run if we didn't have these so-called will or action technologies, all the technologies that do actions for you, blenders, vacuum cleaners, everything that happens, light, heating. That would take a, an army of people to run a household today. And those technologies of the will have actually freed us up so that we can do things, listen to podcasts, enrich our inner world, investigate, put our time, energy, and attention into other things. So these technologies that are now here that can actually do thinking for us, the computer technologies, they can think brain thinking. The thinking that can happen within the computer of the human mind as it is. But what about that other realm of thinking? There are other realms of consciousness that we are only really beginning to explore. And Steiner actually brought those in as principles of the necessity to understand living thinking that would actually become imaginative consciousness. When he, when he uses that term, imaginative consciousness, he doesn't mean you know, having an imagination, but rather that you can perceive in picture the living spiritual reality behind the appearance of the sensory appearance of things. So living thinking will actually continue to unfold until we're able to actually perceive more than we are perceiving now. But that will be a choice. So we stand at an interesting threshold because human beings will choose to continue to grow um, and see themselves as purely physical. And there is, of course, as you are bringing a almost like a blind religious belief in some of the scientific streams that are occurring. And yet we know that science is still unfolding. So it is interesting that there's a certain uh, faith in atheism that you really only see in indoctrinized religions. Mm -hmm. And yet we also have others that are beginning to awaken these other capacities. And when I really watch people think that don't just brain think that means that they actually thoughts become alive as they're entering into their thinking many people will have that experience where you're having a conversation with someone and as you're in conversation some other activity grows and you start having thoughts and revelations that you have never had before that doesn't happen for the machine and these capacities are at the very seed um, growth process, but we have to, like all seeds, give them the light, the water, the substance, the soil of which they're going to grow out of. And so we have to choose to feed that. And for me, part of feeding that is to really engage actively with a life inwardly that is not based on your sensory existence alone how do you actually develop that give time to that of course working with your divine ideal is one aspect of that but then there's also the um, inner schooling or training which actually helps to develop your individualized will capacity your free will that internally needs to get a lot stronger to actually develop the capacities to stay that contemplative in your own thinking that new thoughts can arise. If you don't have a good will internally, then before you know it, you're going to be just thinking about whatever's in the sense of associative thinking, thinking about what's been handed down to you, thinking about what's around you, stimulated from something outside yourself. But thought that is filled with the force of your own intentional will becomes to blossom into something. So on this path of anthroposophy, your, your individualized free will, your free will is guarded. That's why it's guarded around all of your spiritual life. 
it's guarded around your internal life. Freedom stands very high because it is the ingredient to get us through to the next evolutionary phase. Now, people say, well, I freely want to bind myself to machine, but the personality is not free, and all decisions made from the personality are not free decisions because the personality in itself is not the individualized free activity. And so when somebody, for instance, says, I freely want to do this out of their personality, then we are already seeing the personal, limited, transient self engaging in the path. And so the path of inner development is about being able to distinguish the difference between the transient and the eternal in yourself, the essential and the non-essential in what you experience inwardly, what you perceive outwardly. And to be able to have a certain amount of inner training, which Steiner gave us as the six subsidiary exercises, and they come through many schools, so you can find them in various ways. And the fourth pillar is this love of liberation, the love of freedom. So anything that will make you unfree spiritually, I would be cautious of. But that which actually supports the individualized free will and your ability to develop the next capacities, this is the sure and probably only guard against consciousness and machine actually having a negative impact. Wow, that's a lot. For one thing, it brought up to me in terms of science an impasse that seems to need to be overcome in order for what we now consider the scientific community to recognize the true capacity that humans have, this kind of living thinking that you're talking about. The first locked and bolted door that has to be gotten through is this idea that the brain is what's doing the thinking, right? You even called it brain thinking. Yeah. And I once years ago met a Russian academic of note, an actual brain scientist who was doing some very advanced work mapping the brain at a dinner. And I asked him, so what do you make of consciousness? Where, you know, how does consciousness interact with the brain? And he just couldn't even engage with that word. He said, I don't know consciousness. That's nothing. My job is to map the brain. And that was it. It was a conversation stopper. He said it with a tone that was like, why are you even wasting my time with this non-concept? And I heard it in Sam Harris's work as well. Um, he, in, in one of his books, attempts to dispel the notion that human beings have the capacity for free will by citing some scientific study in which it was studied the kind of lag time between someone having an idea light up in their brain and, and doing something. He sort of proves that all are our actions and all the thoughts that come through the brain are not of our own volition. We can't, we don't have any governance of our inner process. There's just stuff that happens in our brain mm-hmm. and we react to it, which is an interesting antithetical idea. But more importantly, what you were moving towards there, and this is a good segue maybe, is what's the purpose of meditation, of this kind of meditation? Because a lot of people say, well, I meditate and I have a spiritual path, but people mean a lot of different things by that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I've encountered in this contemporary dialogue that I referred to earlier is that different spiritual paths and even approaches to meditation vary with different intents. So some intentions are to become more peaceful, to become more productive, to overcome anxiety, to connect better with people. Mm. And and it's not that these aren't worthy ways to make your life better, right? But the path that we're talking about here is founded, it would seem, on not only how do I as an individual overcome this impending threat of technology taking over, um, but also how can we hold humanity in a way, how can we serve humanity by building these inner capacities? And something you said in your talk uh, really resonated with me the other night in terms of this question, why bother meditating? Why bother taking this particular path? You said, ultimately, what kind of building are you going to make depending on where your consciousness is residing? So if you kind of just follow that through, it basically means that everything matters, everything is affected. The entire world, what we as individuals and collectively as humanity do has to do with what our relationship is to our true capacities as human beings and how we're using them and how we're engaging and developing them. 
And so there's A, the importance of choosing your path carefully. And what is your motivation? Is it to enhance your personal life on behalf of your personality? Or is it to serve humanity in some way? And lastly, the how, what are the mechanisms here? And you mentioned it's not just about your thinking. You actually need to learn to strengthen and engage your will in a particular way to empower your thinking. And so we have in anthroposophy, the the three forces you've referred to, thinking, feeling, and willing. So to kind of steer into this last terrain that I wanted to explore a little bit, this idea that there's been this surge in popularity of people using these plant sacrament rituals like ayahuasca and, and peyote ceremonies. And even there's a legalized use of cannabis now that's kind of leading people to feel like they're having spiritual experiences and expanding through certain ingestions. Even the scientific community is exploring microdosing, they're calling it, with LSD to sort of improve brain activity, right? So there's there's this realm that sort of spans from science to indigenous plant ritual. And you said some interesting things about that in terms of the spiritual will and what it means to engage your will in a meditative path versus having something else do it for you. But you had you had two or three really interesting reasons for why this is a dangerous maybe or I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth, but not a true spiritual path, at least for Westerners. Could you kind of revisit that a little bit and talk about your reactions to these trends of using psychoactive substances? Yeah. Well, you know, actually, in a certain way, the substances are doing something for us. They, they are developing or giving or inducing an experience that is something that through meditation and inner development you would develop as a capacity. But if you don't develop it as a capacity and it's induced all of the gifts that come from developing it as a capacity aren't there. And there are numerous gifts that happen through developing these new human faculties out of yourself. So live in thinking where you can get beyond the basic kind of constraints of your everyday thinking to a point where you feel like something is thinking with you and you can go and think beyond the box and you can even have thoughts that really blow your mind. We know cannabis can do for you what people speak about it. The weed does the thinking for you and people feel like they're maybe more creative, but it's the weed inducing the state. And that means two things. One is that you haven't developed the inner free will around it. And in fact, we know that the marijuana um, use disorder is such a picture of what the price that's paid because it undermines the will. So people that get involved with marijuana on a reasonably regular basis will begin to recognise that the marijuana that does your thinking for you also can then begin to undermine your capacity for your own will processes so that's one aspect of it but there is also gifts that arise out of going that path yourself because as you develop these faculties you have to encounter all the parts of you that block the way and work transformatively with that. So the limited thinker is transformed in the process. So somebody that develops living thinking out of themselves doesn't have to use a substance or use more and more of that substance to break through and mimic that because they actually have transformed the dead thinker on the journey So they are actually overcoming internal blocks or limitations that, in a way, don't snap back. And whereas we see quite the opposite happen with cannabis, yes, you get this kind of shift in the thinking, but you've not done it out of yourself, so the price you pay is it's undermined the, the will force, and the personality is not transformed in the process. In fact, you might develop more aspects of the personality. One of those aspects I call it is the mystical me, the part of us that goes into sort of being mystically engaged as a personality. But it's still the transient self. It's still the part of you that does not engage in a direct and living way 
with the spiritual world. So it doesn't just take something away, it actually prevents the very growth processes which actually are giving us something, the transformative process of the path. And that's something that's hard for people to say, I want to do that because transforming yourself is much harder when you can have a drug do it for you. But presumably that's what the seeker wants, really, right? Yeah, so they're thwarting what they really, their inner longing. Exactly. They're thwarting what they really want, and that is to actually make true transformation. So it would be a little bit like the earth, you know. We're going to appear like we are um, green and not using fossil fuels, but we're going to actually use fossil fuels to make it look like we're not using fossil fuels. Like, it's not going to help in the long run. In fact, the demise will come about because of it. So we see that there's lots of things that I do speak about in this in my new book, um, A Bridge to Spirit and Understanding Consciousness Altering Substance, because it's quite different when somebody engages in those substances that is a part of what I would refer to as the industrialised interior people, meaning that if you're a part of the industrialised world and you've bought into it with your personality, which most of us have, that are 60% of the world at least have, then you think, feel and even do differently because of the industrial world and when a substance induces spiritual activity it's actually using the interior forms that you start with so it's very different from someone that's born and raised for generation and generation in an amazon village to take ayahuasca and then somebody that lives in new york and fasts for a week it's a very different process. And then if you just follow the thinking through, why is it that somebody wants something else to do it for you? One, a quick fix. Two, these are all, all the reasons why our earth is in such trouble. Corporations could not exist the way they did if we didn't want one comfort, someone to do it for us, a quick fix. They wouldn't exist the way they do. So these impulses that are leading people towards the quick fix path are the same impulses that have actually brought about the point where we're so suffering inwardly. They cannot be the way out. However, this is what, where we've come to. You know, we have this industrialised way of even engaging with the meditative path. As you have said, you know, we have mindfulness and money-making mindfulness and you know in fact you can do mindful exercises and have no sense of the spiritual world it's not necessarily about that it's about what can I gain out of these exercises what can I personally gain out of this and meditation originally was never given to counteract the restless agitation of life it was actually to allow us to become awake in realms of consciousness which we would otherwise be unconscious and to learn to then participate in those realms. Not to serve myself, but actually as a awakening for the self that could then be an awakening for the world. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You had also pointed out that in those cultures, it wasn't that the whole village was doing ayahuasca. Usually it was the one shaman who'd been trained in the jungle and who was working as a healer on behalf of other people. And now we all want to be you know, the shaman and do it the easy way. It's almost, it reminds me of this whole new concept of space travel that people are talking about. Originally, the space programs are about highly trained people going out into space to, you know, study the moon and geologists coming back. And now it's more about like, I have enough money. I want to get on Elon Musk's rocket just so I can go out into space and tell everyone I was out in space. And it's almost like a shadow side of people becoming more individualized, right? Yeah. The healthy picture isn't that means we all become egomaniacs that want to be served by everybody else and make our lives better and get to be shaman and the astronaut and, and everything and, and be a YouTube star and be famous. Like everyone wants a bit of fame. Everyone, you know. So there's so much more for us to talk about. And I, I so appreciate you sharing your time. I know we have to, to wrap it up, but perhaps we'll have another opportunity in the future to do a, yeah. a part two. And I do think that thought that, you know, perhaps, perhaps people that all want to be the shaman are actually um there is an echo 
of this reality that we stand at a place where we all can be alchemists in a certain sense. We all can, but it actually requires an extraordinary um, inner responsibility to take our next step forward, to take our progression forward. And, and as we do that, we take the stream of which we are united with forward as well, which arises out of this one light. Well, thank you, Lisa, so much for sharing your insights. Uh, I hope we get to do this again. Um, I want to reiterate that your website is innerworkpath.com, and you do have a new book coming out. Can you say the title one more time again? At the moment, the title is A Bridge to Spirit, Understanding Conscious Inner Development and Consciousness Alternating Substances. Great. Okay. Well, we'll look for that or a slight variation on that title. Um, And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Beyond and Above. Our theme song, Beyond, was composed and performed by Living Roots from their album, Dust Into Gold. It's an amazing record. Please go check out all things Living Roots at livingrootsmusic.com.